It's after hours at Nuova Villa Tamaro, a restaurant on Coney Island in 1931. Sitting at a lone table are four mobsters playing cards, a single waitress, and a cook, both paid off to keep quiet, waiting on them to finish whenever they're ready. The air is filled with smoke, and the men speak in low voices. Tension is present. A war they've been waging against a rival gang for the last year is not going well, but they're choosing not to talk about it too much tonight. Tonight, they just want to enjoy their meal and play cards. One of the men excuses himself from the table to use the restroom, and the other three start the next hand without him. The moment the door to the restroom closes, three men burst through the front door, pulling out machine guns and spraying the entire room with bullets. The attack is over in seconds, and the three men dash back the way they came, jumping into a moving car and disappearing into the night. The fourth man returns from the bathroom to find his three associates dead at the table. Unfazed, he walks up to the table, boxes up what's left of his food to have for lunch the next day, and leaves the restaurant without a word. It had all gone according to plan. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the podcast. The podcast is, as always, Tanner Talks About Stuff That Happened. I'm Tanner, and I'm talking about stuff that happened. Today we're talking about Mafia Wars. Not the Facebook game from, like, the early 2010s. We're talking about the real-life thing, the Godfather, Goodfellas, all that good stuff. We're talking about conflict within the mafia in the United States. We're going to talk about the origins of the mafia, everything that we really can talk about to really get the gist of what happened here. Uh, we got a lot to talk about, so let's get right into that. So before we do, remember that if you enjoy the podcast, the best way to help the podcast right now is to leave me a five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts, or if you have the ability Give me something nice to read. Let me know why you enjoy the podcast. It really means a lot to me. Also, to my friends who listen to the podcast, I've been getting a lot of messages and texts recently. And and, and I'm not saying that like as someone with like five followers who I'm I'm saying I actually get a lot of messages and texts from you guys. And it really means a lot to me when you tell me how much you like the episodes I've been releasing lately. Um, It's nice to be back on the horse and doing this again. It it feels really good. So thank you all for letting me know personally that you enjoy this. Um, Now, I don't have anything else to say before we start. So... Let's talk about it. The Castellamarese War. Let's go. To fully understand the Castellamarese War, we have to take a deep dive all the way back to the 1800s, right after the unification of Italy. So you know what that means? Let's do it! It's 1861, and the King of Italy, Victor Emmanuel II, just proclaimed that Italy is now a unified nation instead of a series of independent states, which is what it had been all the way up to this point. So, there were a lot of complexities to that. There's a lot of paperwork involved, a lot of administrative stuff, a lot of new jobs. But one of the main things that happened was that the king established an overarching state police force that was meant to take the reins from the smaller state governments that had existed up to that point. Because, you see, up to that point, 
Like most other nations, Italy was dealing with gangs and bandits and other minor organized crime. And the states had hired up all their own private armies and police forces to defend their lands. And it wasn't even just the state. It was a lot of landowners and individual landowners had hired these little tiny private security details to protect all their land. So when the king established this overarching police force, all these states and these landowners disbanded a lot of the private armies they had because they felt they no longer needed them. And the amount of money that they'd save without paying for those was enormous. Profit margins were significant, significantly higher. So some places in Italy handled the transition quite well, but others were widely neglected. And one of the places that was widely neglected was the island of Sicily off the southwest coast of Italy. It's, it's, the, it's the ball that the Italian boot is kicking. So the problem with Sicily is that it had been pretty independent for a long time. It was kind of operating outside the confines of wider Italian society. So incorporating it into the unified Italy was a slow process. Reports show that there were often less than 350 policemen operating on the entire island, which is about the size of New Jersey. Some towns were visited by a police officer once every few months to cart away people who had broken the law and been caught. So because of this sparse law enforcement, many people in Sicily were looking for someone to protect their land. Enter the Mafia. Now, there had been smaller gangs and bands of robbers roving Italy before the unification, but they hadn't achieved any large-scale organized success. So when people started looking for help in Sicily, some of these smaller gangs started offering to protect these people rather than rob them for a price. Eventually, the gangs start realizing that they can, protect, they can protect several plots of land owned by several landowners at once. And so at their price, this made the gangs fairly wealthy. And as knowledge of their wealth grew, so did the size of the gangs, followed by the number of lands they protected. The Sicilian Mafia was born. By 1900, about... 35 to 40 years after the proclamation of the Unified Italy, there were somewhere around 670 Mafia members on the island of Sicily, belonging to eight different Mafia clans, and, and that's just according to police reports. It's likely that there were a lot more than that. But it's around that time that the Sicilian Mafia began joining the mass immigration to the United States in hopes that it would be a fresh place to set up operations, led by a guy named Paul Kelly. Now, Paul was not only a talented criminal, he was also a talented boxer from Italy. So, he got this small band of misfit criminals in Lower Manhattan, and he, he boxed his way past the undercard rounds in these underground boxing rings to the headlining rounds in these tournaments before he racked up enough money to make something of himself. So, in the 1890s, he bought and populated a few brothels in New York City, and he hired a few of his friends to be security for them. These friends were named Johnny Torrio... Lucky Luciano, Mayor, Meyer Lansky, Frankie Yale, and Al Capone. Together, they started the Five Points Gang. The Five Points was a nickname for a street junction in Manhattan that still somewhat exists today. The streets were called Anthony Street, Cross Street, Orange Street, and Little Water Street. Now today, those streets are called Worth, Moscow, and Baxter, and Little Water Street doesn't really exist anymore. So where these four streets joined was called the Five Points. And it was known for being a hub of immigrant activity in the mid-1800s. In the late 1800s, Italian, Jewish, and Irish immigrants began moving in and establishing a significant presence in the area, which is where Chinatown sits today. 
The area was infamous for rampant crime and hosted numerous gambling dens and brothels. This is where Paul Kelly had his start. And a lot of historians would argue that this is where the American Mafia got its start. So after purchasing several brothels, he hired on his friends for assistance in protecting them. And this began the Five Points Gang. At the time, because of the crime problem in the Five Points area, there were a number of smaller gangs, each protecting their small claims of territory. So, to consolidate his authority, Paul Kelly led the Five Points gang into brutal and bloody clashes with rival gangs, chiefly the Dead Rabbits and the Wyos. In these clashes, most rival gang members were either killed or fled the scene, and eventually, the gang leadership submitted to Paul and the Five Points gang, pledging allegiance to him. Eventually, Paul Kelly led the most powerful gang in the area, and at this point, the Five Points graduated from petty thefts and racketeering and started dipping their toes into the political world forging agreements with prominent political figures and interfering with elections on their behalf in exchange for oversight regarding their criminal practices. And this rapid rise to power in the criminal and political spheres alarmed other gangs who presided over nearby territories, and eventually, border disputes broke out between the Five Points gang and other gangs. Violence spilled into the streets in the early 1900s, and in 1903, there was a large-scale battle where over 100 gunmen from both sides engaged in a firefight in the streets of Manhattan over disputed territory, leading to v several deaths and a number of injuries. The people of Manhattan weren't happy about the violence in their streets, and they started pressuring the government to take action, not knowing that those officials were in cahoots with the very gangs they, that were fighting each other. So... Likely due to whatever power Paul Kelly held over the officials, the officials sided with the Five Points gang and arrested the leader of the rival gang. And this left the door wide open for the Five Points to expand their reach anywhere they wanted. They expanded their borders deeper into Manhattan and across the river into New, Jer New Jersey, and here, Kelly really started upping his game. Being already fluent in Italian and English, Paul also learned French and Spanish to be able to impress socialites. He opened this fancy athletic club in Manhattan, complete with a cafe and a dance floor where he attracted high society and mingled with them. He learned to appreciate the finer things such as classical music and fine art, and in doing this, he transformed the Five Points gang from a band of rugged street thieves to a sophisticated network of organized crime. They went from wearing cheap coats and plain caps to tailored suits and bowler hats. By 1908, with the assassination of yet another high-profile member of a rival gang, the Five Points Gang became the most powerful criminal organization in Manhattan. Now, the golden age of the Five Points Gang is important to note, because something happened here that directly affected the conflict of the Castellamarese War. I mean, you might have been thinking, like, why are we talking about this random gang? Like, because this is important, because the Five Points Gang began allowing Irish and Jewish members into their ranks, which went against a very staunch tradition among older Italian gang members. Italian gangs were for Italian people and no one else. 
Many older gang members would not even do business with Irish or Jewish gangs, much less let the individuals join their ranks. Paul Kelly and the Five Points disrupted this tradition, and it strengthened the Five Points by bolstering their ranks. Remember this when we start talking about the war, because it becomes a factor. Unfortunately for Paul Kelly, criminality takes its toll. I mean, it had been more, ten, more than 10 years since Paul started the Five Points Gang, and several failed assassination attempts paired with the stress of the job was getting to him. So, around 1910, he closed his pompous athletic club and moved further north on Manhattan Island into Harlem, where he laid low for most of the rest of his life, taking part in small-scale racketeering and union events and things like that, but someone had to take up the mantle. Something as big as what the Five Points gang had become wasn't just going to dissipate because the leader walked away. No, someone was going to rise to the challenge. So remember how we talked about a few big names that showed up in the Five Points roster? I mean, I'm sure you recognize at least one of them. There's Johnny Torrio, Al Capone, Lucky Luciano, and Frankie Yale, and they were among those in the Five Points gang, and they were the ones to take up the mantle once Paul Kelly took a step back. So this marks the formal end of what was then called the Five Points Gang and the beginnings of more mafia-style operations in New York. These new leaders quickly became kingpins in the underworld of New York City, dividing up the Five Points territory amongst themselves and expanding their respective operations in those areas throughout the 1910s until a specific event took place in the United States that sent their profits through the roof. The 18th Amendment to the United States Constitution passed on January 16th, 1919. Prohibition. What was the Prohibition? In the United States, from 1920 to 1933, a nationwide constitutional law prohibited the production, importation, transportation, and sale of alcoholic beverages. The alcohol industry was curtailed by a succession of state legislatures and finally ended nationwide under the 18th Amendment to the United States Constitution, ratified on January 16, 1919. Prohibition ended with the ratification of the 21st Amendment, which repealed the 18th Amendment on December 5, 1933. Following the ban, criminal gangs gained control of the beer and liquor supply in many cities, and by the late 1920s, a new opposition to prohibition emerged nationwide. Critics attacked the policy as causing crime, lowering local revenues, and imposing, quote, rural Protestant religious values on, quote, urban America. The 21st Amendment ended prohibition, though it continued in some states. To date, this is the only time in American history when a constitutional, constitutional amendment was passed for the purpose of repealing another. So, with the ratification of the 18th Amendment, suddenly, for the sale, production, transportation, and importation of alcohol was strictly illegal on U.S. soil. Notice how the prohibition never stated that you could not consume alcohol, you just couldn't buy it, transport it, produce it, or import it. Fortunately, for the numerous enjoyers of the sauce in New York, the former members of the Five Points Gang didn't really consider themselves beholden to any laws dictated by governments. The profit margins for selling alcohol were, I mean, you can imagine through the roof. Forget prostitution, forget gambling, forget protection, forget extortion. This, this was where the real money was. The prohibition in the United States gave rise to the most intricate and widespread underground organized crime syndicate the world had and has ever seen. 
Deals were made across across every major city in the country with caravans of illegal, sometimes homemade liquor being protected by armed guards as they traveled from city to city. The leaders of each operation paid off anyone from street officers to some of the highest ranking politicians in the city, state, even federal government to keep hush and keep mum about the sale and the scale of the operations. It's estimated that at the height of the prohibition, there were as many as 100,000 speakeasies in New York City alone. I mean, come on, I'd be remiss to talk about the mafia without discussing a speakeasy and what they, what it was. So what is a speakeasy? A speakeasy, also called a blind pig or a blind tiger, is an illicit establishment that sells alcoholic beverages or a retro style bar that replicates aspects of historical speakeasies. Speakeasy bars came into prominence in the United States during the Prohibition era. Speakeasies largely disappeared after Prohibition ended in 1933, but what was it? Speakeasies were not usually in a typical bar setting, but rather they were often small establishments that flew under the radar. Famously, Daniel Okrent, author of Last Call, The Rise and Fall of the Prohibition, he wrote, It didn't take much more than a bottle and two chairs to make a speakeasy. At the beginning of the Prohibition, speakeasies were generally very small operations, but as they became more renowned, larger speakeasies, complete with live music and dancing, began opening up across New York City, some even becoming legendary for their services. The 21 Club, the Redhead, the Punchin' Club, O'Leary's on the Bowery, and the Bath Club all went down in history as famous speakeasies. Speakeasies were the bread and butter of the mafia, as you can probably imagine, and with all this money flowing into the pockets of the rapidly growing mafia network, conflict was practically inevitable. Getting into the mid-1920s, when the speakeasy industry had graduated to larger-scale venues needing far more alcohol, shipments of the sauce got larger and more lucrative. In time, rival gangs began raiding one another's caravans and stealing their merchandise. This led to shootouts in the streets, backroom murders, betrayals between gang members and double agents practically everywhere. The situation was volatile and ever-changing, ever but hey, that's what you get when the law doesn't matter. And around this time, fascist Italian dictator Benito Mussolini rose to prominence in Italy and began waging war on mafia operations in his country. While the Mafia could keep control during the first few decades after Italian unification, since the government was still trying to get its footing, Mussolini's desire for complete control over Italy significantly disrupted their operations. Mafia members began fleeing Italy to New York, which was rumored to be the criminal land of milk and honey at the time, and with this huge influx of Italian immigrants, the Italian crime syndicates operating in New York practically took control of all Mafia dealings in New York. Other, smaller groups either bowed down to the Italian crime families or found themselves with a hole in the back of the head. And this, here, right here, this is where we see the first inklings of a real Italian mafia war on U.S. soil. Really quick, let's take a quick step back to introduce ourselves to a guy who is one of the most prominent figures in this war. And one of our three main characters, there's going to be three of them, remember, this is the first one. It was a guy named Joe the Boss. Joe's full name was Giuseppe Mazzaria, but across New York, he was known as Joe the Boss. After he immigrated to the United States in 1902, Joe had spent the next 15 years climbing up the ranks of the underground in New York City. By 1920, he'd built quite the reputation for himself, even having survived several assassination attempts, earning the title, The Man Who Can Dodge Bullets. And while the Five Points Gang was dissolving, Joe the Boss 
was rising, and he eventually became the head of the Morello crime family. What is a crime family? A crime family is a unit of an organized crime syndicate, particularly an Italian organized crime, and especially in the Sicilian Mafia and Italian-American Mafia, often operating within a specific geographic territory or a specific set of activities. In its strictest sense, a family, or clan, is a criminal gang operating either on a unitary basis or as an organized collection of smaller gangs, for example, cells, factions, crews, etc. In turn, a family can be a sole enterprise or part of a larger syndicate or cartel. Despite the name, most crime families are generally not based on or formed around actual familial connections, that's important to know, although they do tend to be ethnically based and many members may in fact be related to one another. Today, there are as many as 26 Italian crime families operating in the United States, five of the most prominent ones being in the New York metropolitan area. <laughs> Joe had risen to become the boss of the Morello crime family, which would eventually become the Genovese crime family that still operates in New York City today. And while the Five Points gang had been schmoozing in high society, the Morellos had been hard at work dominating the Bronx, East Harlem, and parts of Manhattan. Well into the 1920s, Joe expanded their loan sharking, racketeering, bootlegging, and illegal gambling operations. In 1928, he ordered that the leader of a nearby gang either pay him a tribute or step down and give him control of the gang. And the rival acquiesced. Joe was that unstoppable. Because of the amount of control he wielded, he was able to demand tributes from gangs in the surrounding areas without fear of retribution because his criminal empire had become so prominent. But Joe's greed had become too great and it led to his downfall. In 1930, shots rang out in Lower Manhattan between a few of Joe's guys and a few mobsters from a rival group called the Castellamarese clan. Now, the Castellamarese clan was not exactly a crime family. It was more of a loose connection of Italian gangs who held allegiance to each other based on the fact that they were all from the same area in Sicily, in Sicily called Castellam Castellamare. Essentially, they all operated on their own, but when push came to shove, they were more than willing to jump at the chance to defend one of their fellow Castellamarese gangs. So when Joe's guys and a few guys from the Castellamarese syndicate exchanged gunfire over a convoy of illegal liquor, tensions got pretty hot. Now, enter the second of our three main characters, Salvatore, uh, Salvatore, I think, Maranzano. Salvatore was a mob boss, also from Sicily, and one of the, quote, old guard of the mafia. He immigrated to the United States in the late 1920s with the sole purpose of uniting the Italian crime families and putting himself at the head of them, creating this elite, unstoppable mafia network. He knew that doing so would make him the most powerful man in New York, and from there, he could expand his operations across the United States. He arrived in New York and took control of the Castellamarese clan, and the only man who stood in his way was Joe Mazzaria, Joe the boss. Salvatore declared war on Joe Mazzaria in early 1930, and immediately gunfire was exchanged in the streets as the two largest crime families in New York clashed. Joe the boss started losing allies almost instantly. See, Joe the boss led with an iron Darth Vader-like fist. He had little respect for those who were beneath him, and money and power were his driving forces. 
In the Italian Mafia, tradition had long held that it's important to respect other Italians who are also part of the underground, but Joe didn't really adhere to this tradition. He extorted and demanded hefty monetary tributes from any mob boss he could get a hold of. So when war broke out between him and Salvatore Maranzano, this behavior came back to bite him. Shortly after hostilities were announced, Salvatore started reaching out to Joe's disgruntled allies, promising them protection and power if they allied with him. Didn't take much for the jaded mafia bosses to be swayed. The first domino to fall was Gato Reina, a Sicilian mafia boss operating in Harlem. He secretly defected from Mazzaria's faction and allied himself with Maranzano, but in the mafia there are eyes and ears everywhere, and word reached Joe the boss of the betrayal. Within days, Gaetano was dead on the pavement from a shotgun blast to the head. To Joe, this was a loose end he'd just tied up. Unfortunately, the family that Gaetano had presided over did not see it that way, and they allied with Maranzano. Secretly at first. When that family bailed out, members of the family that Joe had threatened into submission barely a year earlier, remember the one he'd demanded tribute from, they started getting restless also. Many of them had been born in Sicily and were from the region, the, the region of Castellamare, and they felt they owed their allegiance to Maranzano, not to mention how much they hated Joe Mazzaria. They decided to get involved with the war, and on July 15, 1930, one of Joe's mob bosses was gunned down outside his garage. But Maranzano did not claim responsibility for the death, as was customary. In fact, no one did which means it's highly likely that the murder came from inside Joe's ranks. In the following weeks, Mazzaria suffered two more casualties. One was his planned successor, Giuseppe Morello, and the other was the man he'd appointed to take care to take the place of Gaetano Reina after his murder. Both were gunned down with Mazzaria, then getting the notice that the Reina crime family was responsible, and they'd now join the Castellamarese clan. Turns out, Killing one of his mob bosses had not gone over so well with the people that mob boss was in charge of. So Joe the boss scrambled to strike back. He targeted a prominent Castellamarese loyalist living in Chicago, president of, the popular, of a popular Sicilian workers union, and had him murdered as a message to Maranzano of how far Joe could reach. Maranzano responded accordingly. In the next few months, three more of Joe's prominent allies were murdered, and at this point, many of Joe's men lost faith in his leadership, defecting to Maranzano's faction. And here's where we, we reveal the third main character in this story. Lucky Luciano. But we've already talked about Lucky. Remember Lucky? He was part of the Five Points gang. That was how he got his start, and now he was one of Joe Mazzaria's most trusted advisors and gunmen. And Lucky plays perhaps the biggest part in this story. So in early 1931, Lucky sees the writing on the wall. This is not going well for Joe the boss. It was inevitably going to end in disaster for all of them. And in the world of the Italian mafia, allegiance comes second, survival comes first. One day, Lucky showed up to Maranzano's headquarters and offered his secret allegiance to Maranzano in exchange for the promise of becoming one of Maranzano's higher-ups at the conclusion of the war and Maranzano agreed. A few weeks later, Joe the boss was having dinner with Lucky and a few of his advisors, and Lucky excused himself to go use the restroom, and three gunmen rushed the restaurant, gunning down Joe and his advisors before Lucky comes back. Upon his return, 
Lucky simply packs up what's left of his dinner and leaves the restaurant without another word. Thus spelled the end of the Castellamarese War. Salvatore Maranzano assumed command of what remained of what remained of Mazaria's faction and reorganized all of his territory into the five crime families that still exist in New York today. But that's not the end of our story. Though the war was over, it had revealed a different conflict, a conflict that existed between the old guard of the mafia and the younger members. Many of the older members of Maranzano's gang were staunchly traditional Italian mobsters power above all else. And they don't do business with non-Italians. If someone stands in your way, you get rid of them. However, younger members such as Lucky didn't really feel this way. Lucky had grown up in New York, and though he had Italian roots, he'd spent his entire adult life doing business with Jewish and Irish gangs. I mean, remember the five points? Some of his friends, such as famous Jewish gangster Bugsy Siegel, he'd met there. Salvatore had completely cut ties with Irish and Jewish gangs that Lucky had become so familiar with, and he wasn't really a fan of that. Lucky had a different vision for the crime syndicate of New York. Mere months after Mazaria's death, a group of Jewish mobsters stormed Salvatore Maranzano's office, shooting and stabbing him to death. The hit had been orchestrated by a Jewish man named Meyer Lansky a close associate of Lucky Luciano, and one of the gunmen was his old friend Bugsy Siegel, both original members of the Five Points gang. Lucky, who Maranzano had appointed to be his successor, rose to become the head of, a, of virtually the entire New York underground. It's rumored that Lucky ordered a massacre of all of those who had held such staunch allegiance to Maranzano and Mazaria and still harbored traditional mindsets, and he had, a, he had this kind of purge carried out during what became the legendary Night of the Sicilian Vespers, but it's disputed if any purge ever actually took place. It's more of like a mob legend, and there's no actual tangible evidence that this took place, but it's kind of a cool story. So, any case, Lucky saw things differently than the old guard had. He reorganized the underground to be headed by a council of families who would meet often to continue an air of mutual respect. He allowed for the inclusion of Irish and Jewish gangs into his underground, with Meyer Lansky and Bugsy Siegel becoming some of his top advisors. He formed a special commission to mediate conflict between Mafia families, and he abolished the position that Mazaria and Maranzano had held, adopting a round-table system of governance over Mafia territory, eventually including the five families in New York, the Chicago Outfit, the Buffalo Crime Family, and families from Detroit and Philadelphia. Lucky's innovations were celebrated in the underground and guaranteed the Mafia's survival for generations. The wars between rival organized gangs gradually died out as Lucky's influence grew, and he became one of the most prominent figures in U.S. criminal history, living a long life of all, with all manner of criminal enterprise taking place in his life before dying of a heart attack in 1962 in Naples. His legend lives on in TV and films, six TV shows, a documentary, and 16 films— books, songs, and in the stories of the old mobsters who had the privilege of meeting him. In 1998, Time Magazine named Lucky Luciano as the number one criminal mastermind of the 20th century. And it all started on a street corner called The Five Points. That's going to do it for today. Thank you all for joining me on the adventure. It's been wonderful to have you here. Thanks for learning about 
Uh, pretty much what is the real-life Godfather story. Pretty cool about how lucky Luciano became. He became number one. He came out on top. Came from humble beginnings in the Five Points Gang to becoming literally head honcho, the big guy in New York City, like the most powerful crime boss in, in New York history. Very cool. Very, very cool story. Thank you all for joining me on this once again. Uh, if you enjoy the podcast, head over to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, wherever you listen to podcasts. Drop me a five-star review. Let me know that you're enjoying what you're hearing. It really means the world to me. Um, and I guess, you know, without further ado, I'll just catch you next time. See you around. <laughs>